Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, Sorry we were away last week, but I think we've been doing the podcast pretty much uninterrupted for going on five years, something like that. And uh, what can I say? Sometimes we need a little bit of a break. But listen, patrons, we didn't cheat you out of any content. You got your episode. So, uh, oh, by the way, check out the Michael and Us Patreon, (laughs) patreon.com slash Michael and Us. Lots of great content there. We had recent episodes on David Lynch's Lost Highway. Uh, What else have we had? You can hear my interview with uh, Dan Kaufman. He's writing you might have seen in uh, the New York Times, the New Yorker. Uh, I talked to him about Scott Walker's legacy in the state of Wisconsin and how it in many ways kind of presaged what happened with Donald Trump. One extra episode a week on there, but also lots of bonus content like that. Anyway, this week uh, we got a Canada episode for you. Uh, the reason for this is pretty straightforward. I don't think, you know, most of our uh, American listeners and listeners further afield will be aware of this. Truthfully, uh, plenty of our Canadian listeners, uh, plenty of people in Canada may not know this, but uh, we're probably days away from a federal election call here. If it hasn't happened by the time you hear this, even. <laughs> yeah, Sunday is the rumor, uh, if not this Sunday, uh, next Sunday. I was writing about this today, so I was kind of keen to discuss it. And there's a documentary, which we're going to be talking about later, that I've wanted to discuss for a while. It's kind of an interesting documentary about uh, media coverage of the 1979 Canadian federal election. But off the top, uh, I did want to talk a little bit about kind of the current state of play in Canadian politics. I mean, Will, have you been following it at all? Are you one of the prospective listeners who I just referred to? No, I've been following it sort of ambiently. I know know who the guys are. Um, (laughs) I know uh, which which parties are going to be kind of the big three. Um, I, I know that... Justin Trudeau uh, is is polling far ahead of his nearest rival, Aaron O'Toole of the Conservative Party, and he's he's been in a uh, minority government for these past uh, however many years. I, I can't remember when we had our last election, and he thinks that this is a great opportunity now that now that COVID is over finally to finally have a majority that will keep him in for five more years. That's that is the narrative that I've picked up, and Aaron O'Toole unlikely to pick up the slack but in an eight-week canadian election campaign um uh, anything can happen folks one gets the sense that if uh, we were discussing a fellini film we might have had a little more to say but uh but (laughs) but no shade against you because it is kind of a weird situation right now you know this election call there's you know there's a pretty widespread consensus that it's coming and it has been for some time and i mean it's not just a media consensus i mean the parties like on the ground are getting are getting ready like i'm getting emails from the ndp being like we're expecting an election call within days etc parties are nominating candidates quite rapidly so you know there's there's a consensus is going to happen what's funny is this consensus exists in spite of the fact that there's not really a reason to have an election at all um, I guess for those who don't know, you know, in Canada, we don't have I mean, we have a fixed election date law, but it like it doesn't really matter because the prime minister can has the power to dissolve parliament. Elections tend to happen more frequently if there's a minority government, because, you know, if you have a majority, you know, why would you call an election before you have to? Canada had, you know, steady minority governments when you and I were growing up, you know, 2004, 2006, 2008, all minority governments. It got us a lot closer to that kind of American style of politics where, you know, you folks down there just seem to be having elections uh, all the time. You replace kind of uh, quality with uh, with quantity uh, in that respect. So this election's going to happen. And I, I've been kind of amused by the fact that, 
you know, there's like seems to be very little expectation that the liberals even try to kind of offer any kind of even token justification. I mean, what they'll say is like some vague stuff about how, you know, parliament's not working. They should be given a majority to handle COVID recovery, etc. But everybody knows that, you know, they're calling an election for just like the most kind of straightforwardly partisan reasons. You know, this is not a terrific opportunity. You know, they don't have some massive lead in the polls, but it's probably the best opportunity they're going to have for a while. But, you know, there are some potential risks to this. And, you know, this is where we're, you know, getting into kind of rank punditry, which uh, is a subject we'll discuss a little bit more uh, when we talk about our film this week. And it was something I was kind of grappling with earlier today as I was trying to write a piece, just sort of, you know, very straightforward piece, just kind of laying out what the uh, what the current dynamics are and what the current kind of electoral landscape looks like. I personally dislike a lot about how, you know, elections and just politics in general are covered. A lot about kind of the way mainstream punditry and, and political commentary works, you know, all the kind of horse racy stuff, opinion polls. I don't really like that stuff, but I also struggle with with the fact that, you know, sometimes that's kind of all you have because, you know, until an election gets going, you don't really have a lot to say. You know, the parties haven't released official platforms. You kind of might have a general sense of what they're going to be running on. And, you know, like the uh, reporters in the movie we watched this week, you know, I got a deadline to fill too. And <laughs> I got to I gotta find some story to tell here, right? But so just to do a little bit of this, uh, you know, kind of crass uh, rank punditry, I do think that, you know, the liberal election call is potentially a little bit risky. You know, we are catching up to the United States in terms of having a, you know, potentially a Delta variant driven fourth wave. I went out and I found some polling today about Canadians' willingness or, you know, their enthusiasm about elections and, you know, the kind of majority mood seems somewhere between ambivalence and hostility to to having an election. You know, I feel like um, a lot of people are kind of, you know, they've been celebrating, you know, in the end of summer, kind of the easing of restrictions and stuff. You know, some people, people who have cottages are at them, you know, people are taking time off work, that sort of thing. I don't know if people are going to be crazy about it. We did just pass, I believe, the anniversary of David Peter Peterson's infamous 1990 election call in Ontario. Um, so this was, you know, very similar as a liberal government. This was a provincial government, and they were, I guess, two and a half years, something like that, into their mandate. And they called this early election because they thought they were going to get a majority. And that's how uh, Ontario got its own, its first and only uh, so far NDP government because David Peterson messed up um, and he ended up losing his seat, I believe, to a, a student union leader at the University of Western Ontario. So, you know, I don't believe in omens, but I did have that kind of thing uh, swirling around my head. Uh, you know, there is some precedent for there being a backlash to an early election call. And of course, with... Uh, so that's good news for Mr. Aaron O'Toole, leader of the Conservative Party. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you brought that up. So, and well, this this is really the most interesting thing. And to me, you know, there's a lot, if you kind of look at the current Canadian political landscape, and Canadian politics has been in a kind of almost like a pure homeostasis for like 70 or 80 years or something, right? Like it, we have uh, with just a few kind of little interludes, you know, there was like the Diefenbaker landslide in the late 50s and Mulroney in 84. And then, you know, the upset in, in 2011 with, you know, the NDP coming in second, winning over Quebec and the Tories winning a majority. The, besides that, Canada really has had like almost uninterrupted liberal rule for just like decade after decade. And it's remarkable, like if you if you look at kind of the vote share for the, the three major political formations since at least kind of in the era of the you know modern party system you know there's not a lot of variation I mean there's variation of kind of a few percentage points each way and that can sometimes produce big swings in terms of the number of seats but you know the NDP since its creation has typically got you know in a bad election it'll get 
13 or 14 percent of the vote in a good one it'll get it'll creep up to kind of 19 it's polling at around you know 20 or 21 kind of that area right now so that's uh, good for the ndp uh the tories you know uh tend to poll high 20s early 30s to the you know kind of mid 30s and the liberals poll kind of in in low 30s to the, the high 30s and that's kind of the standard pattern and if you were to look at the landscape right now kind of look at the polls in some ways, it does just look like we're, we're about to repeat, you know, there's the same formula that Canadian elections often repeat, you know, kind of the, the same playbook. But I'm glad you brought up Aaron O'Toole, because I happen to think that the, the state of the Conservative Party right now could be a wild card that could uh, have a big impact on the election. Well, I don't know. Aaron O'Toole seems awfully unappealing to me. He, he, he registers as an unpopular figure. And I mean, you usually vote for the Conservative Party. So coming from you, that's a big deal. I mean, don't get me wrong. He has my vote. I mean, and, you're more of a and, fiscal conservative. And, and my endorsement <laughs> and the endorsement of the Michael and Us podcast. I, I hope you don't mind. I've given it to several conservative groups in town. So how can Aaron O'Toole actually uh, uh, snatch victory uh, given what he's saddled with? Yeah, so... By I, which I mean himself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole is a man of, I think, uh, it's safe to say incandescent mediocrity. You know, he's been on the job for a year as elected leader of the Tory party during COVID. Um, so actually, I guess slightly less than a year he's been on the job. He's not an interesting guy. Um, you know, the, the media, you know, pundits tried to do little things to make him seem interesting. Like, you know, was Aaron O'Toole going to figure out how to sell conservatism to Canada's working class? You know, whatever. There are things like that. But essentially, you know, Aaron O'Toole, like his predecessor, Andrew Scheer, has really struggled to articulate anything beyond garden variety conservative messaging, which is just that, you know, the liberals are a kind of tax and spend party and their, you know, tax and spend agenda is hurting the hardworking middle class. And, you know, then there'll be some kind of suburban identity politics thrown in and, and a few kind of, uh, you know, appeals to culture war revanchism, which O'Toole has definitely done. You know, he's he's done, he's gone through the playbook of, oh, they're trying to do cancel culture on John A. McDonald and, you know, that kind of thing. They're trying to erase our history by saying that, you know, Canada has a racist past or, you know, whatever. (laughs) So, you know, in in many ways, he really is just very standard conservative leader. I don't think O'Toole is a very talented or interesting politician at all. He's the kind of politician that Canada's Conservative Party, I mean, they produces a, a ton of these guys. But I do also think the job of being the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada is a pretty challenging one. I don't say this with any grain of sympathy, but I mean, Canada's Conservative Party, you know, was in its modern incarnation was created out of the merger of like the old PC party and the sort of more Western based Canadian alliance, much more socially conservative party. That's the progressive conservative party, PC. That's right. Uh, So the PCs and the alliance merged. The alliance before that had been something called the Reform Party, which was a, you know, a creation of the 1990s. It was kind of a Western Canadian party. Canada's Pat Buchanan, basically. Yes, very socially conservative. I mean, very like American kind of influence. And the Conservative Party really, you know, I think they do have a a very serious dilemma in Canada. Uh, They're in a catch-22 where the kinds of people who are conservative activists, um, the kinds of people who make up the hardcore of the Tory base, they want the Tories to run a really right-wing campaign. They want the Tories to run campaigns more like uh, Republican Party campaigns. 
The trouble is, if they do that, um, they're going to alienate, you know, like the 70% of the Canadian electorate that doesn't identify with that uh, stuff at all. The only person who was able to uh, overcome this, you know, in modern Canadian history was Stephen Harper. And he only won a majority once. He, he won two minority governments before he won a majority. And I think the reason Harper was able to do this, I mean, I guess... You know, if we were to kind of rank them, Stephen Harper, probably a more skillful politician than like Aaron O'Toole or Andrew Scheer, probably safe to say. But the fact is, you know, Harper came from the socially conservative right. And so I think he had a buy in with conservative activists and the conservative rank and file. I don't want to make him sound like a moderate because in many ways he wasn't. But I think the strategy that won the Tories their majority in 2011 had much more to do with just very bland kind of, you know, it was winning over the suburbs. It was like targeted tax credits like, hey, vote for us and you're going to get, you know, we're going to pay for your child's hockey equipment or whatever, you know. It was a very fine balancing act and Harper was able to do it for reasons that I think were largely unique to him. Other conservative leaders have really struggled with this. And I mean, the evidence is that Andrew Scheer was unable to win the last federal election despite getting more votes than the liberals, despite the fact that it emerged partway through the campaign that Justin Trudeau had done blackface more times than he was willing to admit, despite the fact that there was a major corruption scandal implicating the liberals, that being the SNC-Lavalin scandal. And just coming away from the, you know, internal politics of the Tory party, which are pretty boring, I do think the weakness of the Tory party, I mean, if they're, they're, you know, in some polls, they're, you know, at 25%, you know, only five, five points ahead of the NDP, four points ahead of the NDP, you know, and some they're a little higher, but even if in the high ones, you know, they get 30%, that's going to be among the worst results that, you know, the modern conservative party has, has gotten. And I think the Tory weakness potentially deprives the liberals of like their only argument during federal elections. You know, I, uh, I've lived in downtown Toronto since 2008 and I've been canvassed by the liberals in every single election. And the canvassers have never said anything other than if you vote for the NDP, you're going to get a Tory government. That's all they say. And they say this because in a lot of elections, it really does work. Um, There are a huge number of voters in Canada, um, and the NDP hasn't always been great at overcoming this, who really just look at the polls like a week before election day, and they look for a few days before election day, and they look for permission to either vote for the NDP or vote for the Liberals. And in the last election, you know, the Liberals were losing, and then Barack Obama came out and endorsed Justin Trudeau. And the Liberals, you know, on the doorstep made the case to people, if you don't vote for us, you're gonna get the, you know, the big bad Tories. And this time when you vote for us, we promise we'll do all that nice stuff that we've been promising for the better part of 40 years. I think the Tory party being weak makes it harder for them to do that. And I also think the absence of Donald Trump is the other big factor because Canadian liberals absolutely love when the United States has a Republican president because it allows them to run a variation of the same kind of playbook I just described where they're able to say, if you don't vote for the liberals, what you're doing is you're, you know, you're welcoming Trumpism into Canada. And during the last election, God, during the 2019 uh, federal election in Canada, we had our own version of like resistance Twitter, but for voting. I mean, you had like, you know, K-hive levels of, you know, liberal partisanship and stuff. It was it was absolutely insane. But does it work for them to say, look at what happened in the U.S.? Don't you love it in the U.S.? Don't you love not hearing about Donald Trump anymore? Don't you love Joe Biden? Wouldn't it be insane to go the opposite direction up here? That's why you shouldn't change horses in midstream. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely going to say that. And uh, that argument you know, kind of may work against the Tories, but I don't know how animating that's going to be to like, you know, voters in places like downtown Toronto, which is very seat rich, or, you know, the GTA in general, or parts of BC they need to win over. I think the most likely scenario is the Liberals maybe win a mon- another minority 
minority, but, you know, unless some really, something really big and fundamental kind of changes and, you know, Trudeau figures out how to recover some of that 2015 enthusiasm, I, I'm just not sure they're going to do it. And uh, I think the Tory party being so low in the polls potentially, uh, you know, makes it harder for them to get there. All right, let me see if I can translate this into a Rick Mercer rant. Well, folks, it's come to this. It looks like the Dauphin has decided that he, the big brass ring I'm impressed is, you... is within his grasp. <laughs> Most people won't get that reference. Go back and listen to, I don't know, 200 episodes ago if you want. <laughs> if, I can't even remember what that episode was when called. When we did a Rick Mercer episode? Yeah, whenever we did uh, the Rick Mercer talking to but, Americans. But why are we having this election? No one seems to know. Certainly not the prime minister himself. Oh, sure. He goes on TV and he ex- and he speaks. Incidentally, uh, and and again, sorry to the people who don't get this very Canada-specific reference, but I walked by uh, the alley yesterday. I always wondered exactly where it was, uh, and I walked by the alley where those rants were recorded. Uh, oh yeah, the other day. R- Rick Mercer, for those who don't know or don't remember, is Canada's kind of uh, comedian laureate. Yeah, sort yeah. of, and like sort of a pundit as well. Yeah, well, he would he would have a Monday night show where he would do do like daily sh- the Daily Show, but not partisan. Yeah, uh, yeah, kind, yeah, kind of kind of like that. He's kind of like. But then he would have an editorial, the the Rick rant, where he'd go to a graffiti alley, a, an alley that literally had graffiti all over it, and and he would he would say what he thought, which all which often came down to those clowns in Congress just don't understand, you know. <laughs> Anyway, I'm sure we'll have lots more on uh, on the election as it gets going, and all of my sagely prognostications are, I'm sure, uh, proven right. With many Canadians still unsure of who to vote for the parties realize that the best way to reach these uncommitted voters is through the popular and powerful medium of television. An army of TV news crews will film or videotape the leaders' every speech, every move. And every evening, eight million Canadians will watch these politicians on the TV news. Well, our movie on this episode is History on the Run, The Media and the 79 Election, a classic documentary from the National Film Board of Canada documenting Canada's 1979 federal election. To set the scene, it's May 1979. Joe Clark, the leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, and I believe still our youngest ever prime minister at, at 39. I think that's right. Although not yet prime minister when, when the film starts. Uh, he is elected the 16th prime minister of Canada after a hard fought eight week campaign, ousting liberal prime minister Pierre Trudeau, who had reigned for 11 years. Trudeau at this point was struggling against rising unemployment, inflation, as well as domestic strife caused by the election of a separatist government in the province of Quebec. But it is a narrow victory. Clark loses the popular vote by more than 400,000 votes. However, his party does win 136 seats in the House of Commons to the Liberals' 114. Alas, Joe Clark's tenure was brief, lasting only from June 1979 to March 1980, at which point Trudeau defeated him and reigned as prime minister until 1984. So uh, for people who don't know, that's a very funny episode uh, in Canadian history because, yeah, Clark was prime minister for about eight months and basically lost it because the Tories, like, forgot how to count uh, one afternoon in the House of Commons. 
And then there was a vote of confidence. And like, they had the votes to win the vote of confidence. <laughs> and they just like, didn't have enough. Like, people were like, you know, in cars or on planes or something. And, uh, you know, a backbencher smelled blood. And that was that was it for Joe Clark. <laughs> it's funny in this documentary, because you get the sense cer- certain election narratives emerge, there's a sense among the journalists profiled, and I'll tell the folks who the journalists are shortly. But there's a sense among them that this is the election in which Trudeau has to finally be humbled. And the journalists sometimes admit to either ambient or conscious influence from Canada's op-ed columnists. The fact that Trudeau was re-elected less than a year later suggests this was sort of just a passing fancy, but we see in this film the mighty Toronto Star, Canada's highest circulation newspaper, gives an unprecedented endorsement to Ed Broadbent's NDP. The analysis the film offers essentially is, well, Trudeau's in the doghouse and they can't endorse Joe Clark, so... Like they have to make things interesting is basically, <laughs> yeah. the, is basically the analysis. So uh, I have to say I like this film. I mean, it's a film which is, you know, at the time, chronic chronicling what it takes to be. And I think, you know, probably was the most stage managed Canadian election, the one where, you know, TV played the biggest role. It wasn't until 1968 that Canada got its first televised leaders debate. There was also one in, in 79 that we get to see a, a smidgen of in this film. But I like, I like this documentary because, you know, I like to see it as kind of if people have listened to our episode on the D.A. Pennebaker joint, The War Room, which is a film I'm kind of obsessed with, because I think, you know, even though it's in many ways an interesting film, it embodies a sort of really annoying fetishization of like, it's, it's sort of saying, you know, look at these backroom boys, look how politics have become artifice, but then it's like, but look, they're magic, they're sorcerers. Isn't this cool? Look at them, they're doing spin. They're talking about optics. Isn't that awesome? And this film has a much more, more than 10 years earlier, has a much more kind of jaundiced take on politics. It, it, it features a bunch of journalists who are, who are covering the campaign and are really grappling with how kind of stage managed it is, you know, because you, you, know, you, go, to one, uh, you go to one speech and you hear a stump speech and then, you know, that's in Hamilton. And then you go down the highway to St. Catharines and the guy gives the exact same speech and, and you're supposed to write about both and you're like, well, wait, how am I going to write about the same speech? And then you then you realize, well, they threw in kind of one extra little tidbit. They said that the <laughs> other guy looks deflated and it's like, there's your lead for your story. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so the film profiles four journalists. There's Mark Phillips, who reports on the Trudeau campaign for the CBC. He's probably the most cynical of the journalists we see. He says at one point, I believe that politicians like power. I believe that they have to be watched as a consequence of that. And I also think that the longer they've been in power, the more carefully they need to be watched because the firmer grip they have on the levers of power. I've always had a healthy suspicion of people who were directly involved in the political process. I don't think I doubted their integrity, but I suppose I doubted some of their motivation. Obviously, that's an admirable thing to say. It's sort of the extent of the political perspective offered in this movie, just a kind of free-flowing distrust of power in whatever side. I part ways with that at a certain point, but I do much prefer it to uh, the obsequiousness that you sometimes see um, you know, I think became sort of more popular after the 1990s, you know, especially when political media becomes more partisan. You know, I think of that campaign journalist story about going onto the Obama plane in 2008 and just being like appalled because in the press section, it was just plastered with photos of the of the reporters who were supposed to cover uh, Obama. And they're all just with Obama, mm-hmm. like taking selfies and stuff, you know, and it's like the, these were people who were like almost thought of themselves as like they were the court scribes, you know, following following the king around on his, you know, 
tour of the provinces or whatever. And so obviously this kind of, uh, you know, more cynical and kind of self-aware take on politics uh, is preferable, even though I think it has limitations. We get a sense of different forms of journalism. There's Jim Munson, who's a reporter for Standard Broadcast News, a radio network that gets something like 7 million listeners. He complains that the problem with what he's expected to do is he has 60 seconds in which you offer the key soundbite from the Trudeau stump speech, and then maybe a little tinsel of analysis. And it all has to be done within 60 seconds. Not a lot of room to navigate there. And he wrestles somewhat with, you know, is this just free airtime for the politicians? Uh, He derives some satisfaction, however, from being the one who gets there first. He gets on the air before the newspaper columnists get their stories in print. There is Richard Gwynn, syndicated columnist for the Toronto Star. Biographer of uh, Pierre Trudeau and uh, John A. Macdonald, I think later than this. I don't get a great sense from the film about what his politics are exactly. We see him observe that uh, he thinks Joe Clark has been treated somewhat unfairly by the media. Joe Clark being treated as Canada's Gerald Ford, he says, this bumbling, stumbling buffoon. Yeah, and the Tory party had a bit of kind of heritage in that respect because uh, Clark's predecessor, Robert Stanfield, you know, there's this famous photo from the 68 election. So, you know, it's the height of Trudeau mania. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it was the 68 election. He, they were doing some kind of a campaign event or something where he was catching a football and like he drops the football. <laughs> and so that became, you know, that photo became immortalized as sort of like, this is the demise of the old guard machine politician in like a mass media age. Everything's going to be Pierre Trudeau now because he's got, you know, and guys like that, you know, JFK, because they have, you know, style and substance and they uh, look good on TV. But yeah, the, the media very, you know, very clearly saw Clark as being in this tradition of sort of, you know, hapless, non-media savvy Tory leaders. Clark is actually a rare case of a guy who, you know, after being prime minister, had a whole kind of second career. He was a foreign minister in the Mulroney government. And then weirdly in the 90s and early 2000s, I think he was leader. He led the Progressive Conservative Party in its much diminished incarnation. It was kind of a fourth party by that point in two more elections. He very much has a kind of uh, elder statesman uh, connotation today, but he was you know, I suppose largely fairly seen as a pretty hapless uh, political leader back in the day. Finally, there's Doug Small, senior political writer for the National Wire Service, who is rigorously non-ideological. At one point, he says, when I file a story, it goes in everybody's newspapers and everybody's radio station, and it usually goes there more quickly than their own correspondent. It's history on the run. I like that feeling of being there first. He talks a bit about his craft. He talks about, you know, showing up at the campaign event and, you know, first he writes the notes about the music and the crowd size and what's the weather like because you know he's a craftsman it's not just about the stump speech it's also creating a scene is he uh, is he the one where he has to go to quebec to cover trudeau and then he doesn't speak french that's right he's got he's got a, a he's got a, a liberal party employed <laughs> translator who kind of follows him around and, and translates and that's that's great because you get you know he's he's writing out all these details i like this guy because he's describing like the craft in the most hack way but he's like proud of it and you know trudeau uh gets off the stupid riff about they're like there's some balloons or something and he says in French like oh it's the Tory party like blowing away in the wind or something it's like that's so literary that's what, <laughs> yeah. what a beautiful device yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know if you noticed, well, but there's a scene in the film that occurred just, I don't know, 100 meters from where we're recording this. Did you pick up on that? Wait, no, where was that? In Christy Pitts with Ed. Oh, is that where that was? Okay. Yeah, so there's a scene where uh, there's a scene where Ed Broadbent is at a baseball game. It's the Toronto Maple Leafs baseball team in Christy Pitts, which if you know Toronto, you'll know where that is. And I don't know, there's not much to the scene. He's just kind of glad handing. And, you know, I think he takes a bite out of a ice cream sandwich someone offers him or something. I'd seen this film in the past. At one time, I did actually ask Ed if he remembered this particular day because I was curious about like I've, I've always kind of wondered about to what extent like if if you are doing zillions of campaign events and you're the leader of a political party and you're touring nationally you know Canada is a huge you know it's the second largest you know national landmass in the world like do you remember stuff like this and to my surprise he remembered everything about that day he remembered about there was some local actor that was like a big supporter and helped organize it or something i wonder if you're, when you're a politician you have to work those muscles you know you have to work those memory muscles because you run into people again i, I don't know i guess so i mean if so that's a talent that i i don't think i could ever cultivate but yeah. uh, it's an impressive one for those who can did he ever see this movie by the way did you ever ask him about that i don't i think i did ask him but i, I don't think he i don't yeah. think he'd see the film seen the film i think uh, I think if you've lived through these campaigns, you probably don't want to revisit them. So the overwhelming narratives are that this is a boring election. I don't think we ever really get a sense of what the issues at play are. It's a referendum on does Trudeau deserve to be punished, which ultimately he, he sort of is. Right. This is a bit of a tension in the film, and I don't know how much to really blame. You know, I think the film is setting out to talk about the role of TV news in a political campaign, and I think it largely does that in an interesting way. But I do think there are limitations to its perspective. There were actually, you know, I would argue some pretty big things at stake in this movie. And it's unfortunate that they just, you know, the the film is is a critique of how, you know, all of this is is artifice. But then repeatedly you get these voiceovers of journalists talking about how trite and artificial everything is. And then if you kind of listen to what, you know, the, the person on stage is saying, it's actually like, quite consequential. So, you know, there's a scene where Trudeau has this big rally and it was this big gamble. It was at Maple Leaf Gardens uh, in Toronto. And I think it's Richard Gwynn, you know, he goes there and he's saying, you know, it's a big gamble for them to have this because, you know, if you don't fill Maple Leaf Gardens, it's just saying, you know, you can't, you can't take Toronto because things are too deflated. And Gwynn sees Trudeau going on stage and he's kind of like not really glad handing. And he's like, at that moment, I knew that he was like feeling deflated. They're constantly finding moments like this, like the empty plane or whatever. Uh What was the plane thing they were talking about? Yeah, just there was just a mood on the plane. And, and at that moment, yeah. everyone knew. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and to its credit, right, they will also kind of try to check against that sort of impulse where they'll say there is too much camaraderie in the pundit class. We all read the same, uh, you know, op-ed columns and stuff. And there is a lot of groupthink and it's a problem. But I mean, in that scene, you know, they, the liberals, it turned out, you know, seemed like they did fill Maple Leaf Gardens, basically. And Trudeau, you know, said this pretty significant thing about how, you know, he was going to try to get you know, his big thing, which he later achieved, was trying to get this Charter of Rights and Freedoms, because at that point, the uh, Canadian Constitution was still in Britain. And so Trudeau talks about, you know, he's on stage and he's talking about how, you know, we're going to negotiate with the provincial premiers to, to have a charter. And, uh, you know, if, if, if they won't agree, we're going to take the charter to a referendum. And, you know, that's as consequential an issue as you can kind of have in an election campaign. Or in one of the scenes where Ed's talking and the guy is, uh, you know, I can't remember which journalist is uh, is talking at that point, is saying, you know, oh, you know, the, the media media's kind of decided that, you know, Ed Broadbent's the good guy and 
and you know he's running this very high-minded and substantive campaign but i i think it's just like all the other campaigns and then you know, in the background ed's talking about how like canada needs to have like completely overhaul its industrial policy and have like canadian resources be publicly owned by canadians <laughs> and we need to stop shipping raw materials to other countries for manufacture and have like a you know high skill manufacturing economy here this was kind of a big theme on the canadian left for for decades and again you know it's kind of thing you know you can say that it's artificial in the sense that all the campaigns are running these things that are orchestrated because that's what modern campaigning is but i don't think that's the same as it not as there being nothing at stake and i feel like the film kind of runs up against inferring that or implying that uh, quite a lot in a conversation with Trudeau, the only scoop by any journalist during the campaign was a conversation Phillips had with Trudeau over dinner on the campaign plane, seven miles up. For the first time, Trudeau confirmed that even if the Conservatives held a greater number of seats, but if the Liberals were still in a possible minority situation, they would try to form a government. It was a disastrous thing to say because it reminded everybody of why they disliked him, which was the indifference, the arrogance, the king up in Ottawa paying no attention to the wishes of the people. At one point, the narrator says big stories often happen offstage, away from the mics and cameras, which is a sort of truism, you know, everyone sort of agrees about that. But what we see is, you know, one of the funnier parts of the movie, this MP, this conservative MP named Huard Grafty. I don't know if he's an MP, he might even just be a candidate. I thought it said MP in his, could, could uh, in his blurb be. on screen, but um, yeah, he, him arguing with a conservative organizer about how, how come I never get to go on stage in any of the events? You, you wonder why my constituents don't come out and, and i think he says something about how like i'm an anglophone of note and that's not enough to get me on stage <laughs> when like joe clark comes to quebec or something i, I, I like the scene as well because it's very much like a breaking of the fourth wall and also because one of the first political rallies i attended as an adult was one in toronto right after i arrived um it was during the 2008 federal election it was the sheraton hotel uh, actually, Ed Broadbent was there. He was campaigning alongside Jack Layton. And outside in kind of the entrance to this, you know, sort of big like hotel conference room or whatever, where the, wherever they're having a rally, uh, there was some guy that had like a homemade sign and he was getting irate because some party apparatchik or something was like, no, like we have a we have a message box for this. Like you can't have, we can't just have like one sign be different from all the others or something <laughs> like that. And he just didn't understand. And he was getting really, uh, really mad about it. And it's pretty much exactly like what was happening in this scene. I guess all the journalists in the movie would agree with the sentence that big stories often happen off stage, but I think their idea of a big story would probably be, you know, the deflated energy on the plane rather than... I don't know what what else was happening in the city. They often seem to be looking for these kind of like poetic literary moments that somehow uh, symbolize the zeitgeist of a campaign. Right. And, and this is one of the reasons why this film really fascinates me, because there's a kind of a basic tension in modern politics that I've always struggled with. And it really is about kind of the battle for authenticity. When something is a spectacle, kind of by definition, in the sense that, you know, people are reading about it, they're watching it on TV, there are mass media organizations who are creating, you know, or trying to create an, or, you know, trying to navigate a sort of agreed upon and very like generalized narrative about what the campaign is and who's up and who's down and that kind of thing. To a certain extent, you kind of have to do that. Like in a mass society, when politics is no longer local, you have to do that. But there's also no denying that the mass media is so powerful. And, you know, now with opinion polls and with social media as well, there's simply no denying that the layers of artifice can kind of pile on such that the real election 
action like never happens. It's never happening anywhere. It's well, always this kind of meta, you know, meta spectacle. Do you, do you ever feel sometimes when you're voting on election day and it's for the candidate who's definitely going to lose and you know they're going to lose when you're going to vote? On some level, it feels like this monument to uselessness. And then on another level, it feels like I'm, I am kind of going against the national narrative of this campaign, aren't I? Like, it's fun to vote for a winning candidate because you can feel like you're part of the thing. You know, you're part of the zeitgeist rather than futilely lashing it from the side. Right. And I mean, the thing is, right, so many people, you know, as we were discussing before, so many people, I mean, not just in this country, but I think it's an especially acute problem in this country with our sort of three three and a half party system or whatever we have. You mean two and a half. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, it's like three, there's three national parties and then there's like the Bloc Québécois and, you know, there's the Green Party. Allegedly. (laughs) The Green Party uh, may not even uh, have a candidate this election. That's something our U.S. listeners should look into. It's a fun story. Yeah, maybe maybe I'll write about that or we'll we'll talk Uh, about it at some point. But so, you know, going back to what you're saying, I mean, so many people kind of do vote on the basis of like this ambient, you know, national narrative or something. And the problem is that becomes like a self-fulfilling thing. I mean, it's kind of like the prisoner's dilemma, right? It's like (laughs) an ambient national narrative kind of takes hold. And, you know, this is kind of what the journalists in the film are grappling with and also grappling kind of with their own complicity in this. But then soon, you know, some kind of orthodoxy sets in and then it feels like, you know, you can't just like vote or argue, you know, tell your friends, make an argument like this is who you should vote for. Or, you know, if you're canvassing campaign, whatever, you can't just do that in a straightforward way where it's like, this is what's at stake. This is, you know, this is what you know my party is offering. This is why you should favor what my party is offering. Like you can't do that anymore. It just becomes like you're fighting against this thing that is like not real, but also like it's just everywhere at the same time. <laughs> and I suppose uh, this is ultimately where I really part ways with the perspective of the film, even though it's a film that I very much respect and, and enjoy. I'm sure I'd enjoy having a beer with uh, at least most of the journalists who appear in this movie. I'm sure we disagree on a lot, but have a lot to talk about nonetheless. But I still find, you know, the kind of uh, media cynicism that you ultimately get, even from the more thoughtful ones, uh, you know, pretty, pretty trite or at least uh, at least unsatisfying and kind of inadequate. It's all well and good to kind of recognize and kind of grapple with the fact that, you know, so much of modern politics is artifice. But then the question is what you do about that. I think if, if what you do is kind of, you know, you're a political professional and your attitude is to kind of like shrug your shoulders and just kind of write, you know, horse race bullshit. And, and, you know, maybe once in a while you write an article about like, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't do so much horse race bullshit or whatever, you know. And, you know, I say this as somebody who like, you know, I've, I've had to do, I, I've written punditry, like, you know, of the type I'm kind of criticizing here. Like I'm not. We did a bit of it at the top of the episode. That's actually. exactly yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I'm not above this, but I don't think, you know, that's not enough, you know, to a certain extent. You know, a certain amount of that is, I think, unavoidable, as I said, when politics is no longer local. But at the end of the day, you got to have a perspective and you got to just argue for that perspective, regardless of what the, you know, press consensus is or whatever. For one thing, that's the only way you're going to penetrate, you know, the kind of group think that a lot of the journalists in this movie are rightly complaining about. But for another, that's just a much better and more constructive position to have. You know, if you're fed up with elections being decided on the basis of these kind of superficial issues or whatever, all you can really do and, you know, sometimes Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. All you can really do is try to discuss actual issues and kind of ground things at the level of ideology. And, you know, incidentally, I certainly hope that that's what uh, the NDP is going to try to do uh, in its campaign, which I think is potentially a big opportunity to uh, to gain a lot of seats. You know, stick to, the, stick to the program, stick to the issues. And I think that's probably the way to overcome the liberal strategic voting argument. You know, electorally advisable, but also just the right thing to do. 
One last thing I wanted to say about this movie is, you know, it's funny, you know, it's it's always fun to hear people like in the 70s or before the 70s, you know, complain about like, oh, you know, all these all these modern communications tools, mass media, it's making <laughs> politics so shallow. And it's like if you were to watch, like I've watched the TV like leaders debate that appears briefly in this film. It is so much more substantive than televised debates are now. And that's not because there's been some, you know, decline in kind of the standards like, oh, yeah, the old guys had class or, you know, something <laughs> like that. It's because all the things that this movie is complaining about have all magnified by a factor of about a thousand since this movie was made. Apply any criticism this film or the people in it have about, you know, the mass media's debasing of politics to the age of social media and, and stuff like that. You know, I was thinking watching this movie, you know, when they're talking about Pierre Trudeau, about this weird incident in the last election where, uh, th this is one of those things where even journalists who've like, are just like firmly into, you know, campaign reporting or whatever, I think it kind of strained uh, credulity for even them. And it was some like incident where Justin Trudeau called a press conference or something and it was on like the shore of a lake or something so all the journalists showed up and then all of a sudden Trudeau I don't know if he got in a canoe or if he like paddled up <laughs> and I'm pretty sure in the clip of it you can hear journalists laughing because he's just paddling it's such a weird almost like a Tim and Eric-esque mm -hmm. like spectacle where you know for the liberal strategists who organized this, they're like, oh, it's going to be great. He's going to be paddling around in a canoe. They're going to take photos of it. And it's like, wow, look at him, an authentic Canadian paddling around <laughs> a canoe, just like his father. His father loved canoes. You know, he's, he's going to look like, you know, a, a travailleur in old Quebec or something. And, you know, what it actually looks like is just, it's like, it's so artificial when you actually see it. It's just a guy in a canoe, like, paddling around with a whole bunch of cameras on, <laughs> just in circles, not saying anything. It, it looks absurd. <laughs> Political rallies are carefully staged affairs. The press are herded into compounds near the stage for an unobstructed view of the leader. But big stories often happen offstage, away from the mics and cameras. How's it, how's it going? No problem. It's just that I've never been invited to do anything in Montreal. It's no problem. You were invited to Oh, come on, close. You're, what you're really telling me is that I'm not going to be included in the program, and I'm used to that every time. Is anything new? Payette and Rob. Let's not talk about that night. No, we won't talk about it. It'll just be the same. It's the same shit every day. You know why my people aren't coming? You're, you're politely taking me aside and saying, no. One reason why I'm not so great about talking about this new election is because the people that I often got my opinions from are no longer on the air, and that is the Royal Canadian Air Farms. <laughs> uh, they're kind of Canada's Monty Python. Uh, and uh, do you remember they used to have a skit, a recurring skit, where it was like uh, four or five, no, four, there are only four of them. All four of the Air Farsers, the Farsketeers, uh, dressed as kind of like rural salt of the earth Canadians at a Tim Hortons and they're like talking about politics. Don't you remember that? I don't remember that segment. I did watch the show growing up, but I don't, I don't remember. Yeah, like it would, it would be set at a Tim Hortons or some other sort of local coffee shop and they'd all be sitting there reading their Toronto Suns or their Toronto Stars even, who knows? And and the catchphrase from it was oh yeah, and then another one would say, tell me about okay, it. Okay, now I remember. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. It was in all the commercials uh, and I I can't remember, you know, I would watch the Air Force as a kid and it was cool because like it was funny, of course, you know, they had a chicken cannon, but it was also about politics. So it was kind of grown up like, you know, you could feel you could feel kind of smart watching it, even though I didn't know who Stockwell Day was. Well, I knew from the Air Force that he was a guy who said reform a lot. And just think today we've picked up their mantle. <laughs> yeah.